Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Laura McInerney, co-founder of TeacherTap, an app developed in the UK which surveys teachers every day. At 3.30, it asks three questions which take less than a minute to answer. 40,000 teachers have downloaded the app and about 8,000 respond every day. TeacherTap then analyzes the data in blog posts, shares it with policymakers, and supports researchers. They've also developed ParentPing to survey parents, another group whose voice is often sidelined in conversations about education. There are about 24,000 schools across England and Wales, and they operate very, very differently. And the conditions in your school, you can often think that's the only way for a school to be. And we don't always know what options are available, what can be different. We don't always know what small things really matter to others. What I've loved about TeachTap is it's given us the insights into lots of different worlds. And also it gives teachers every single day an opportunity to think, could we do this differently? Laura was a teacher for six years before becoming a journalist. She ran Schools Week before starting TeacherTap with Becky Allen, a friend who is the chief data analyst and also a professor at the University of Brighton. We talk about why they started the app, what she's learned from listening to teachers, how they come up with their questions, what she likes about each of her three lives, teacher, journalist, and tech founder, and how we might improve schools. I promise you her answers are not at all what you might expect, and that's what makes this conversation so delightful. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Laura McInerney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. So let's start at the beginning. You are a teacher turned journalist turned tech entrepreneur. What problem were you trying to solve with TeacherTap and how did those other previous careers factor in? Back in 2017, which is when TeachTap started, I was the editor of Schools Week. And my co-founder, Professor Becky Allen, she was at the Institute of Education. And Becky had a particular problem, which was that she was trying to survey trainee teachers to find out how we can best help them on the ground. One of the problems when you train to be a teacher, which both Becky and I had done, is, you know, you've got mentors, people who want to help you, but they're not there all the time. So they don't always know if you've had a terrible day or an amazing day and they can stay away. And so she wanted to do surveys, but it's really hard to survey teachers. They're not sat at desks most of the time. They're not on computers. They're not on their phones. All the standard ways of surveying them were pretty impossible. And so Becky had kind of come up with this concept of having people be on their phones using a smartphone app. And it could survey them once a day. Now, in 2017, that was still pretty cutting edge. We forget now that apps are just everywhere. But at the time, teachers were just about in the point where they had enough of them had smartphones that this was a good idea. And I'd gone in because I was at Schools Week as a journalist, writing editorials every week, you know, deciding the news based on, okay, like I check Twitter. I you would WhatsApp like 10 of my friends or whatever is slightly like I am I am the ruler of this paper and I will decide what teachers think. And I was always aware that that just was a rubbish way of doing things. And when she told me about this idea, I said, well, look, is there any chance we could survey all teachers and that way we could get their voice and reflections of things that were happening? So if a, if a education secretary comes out and announces some mad policy, can we find out whether they actually like it or not? And she said, yeah, sure, but only if you set this thing up with me. And a few weeks later, we set up TeachTap. We didn't really know what we were doing. We're very unlikely tech bros. And suddenly we had an app and people were on it. We got about a thousand teachers within, I think, about a couple of weeks. Launched at ResearchEd in 2017. And from there, it's really 
spiraled out of control and I'm no longer at Schools Week and Becky's no longer at the Institute of Education and we run this thing that now has about 8,000 teachers every day in the UK and teachers in the Netherlands and Flanders on it as well, which is quite incredible. It takes 58 seconds to answer the three questions you give every day. And did you get right away that it had to be super short because you had been teachers? Becky and I, frankly, I think if we could dedicate our lives to one thing, it would be just going around education and making everything shorter and more efficient. Like that's just what we love to do. We've got loads of ideas for doing that and this was like how can you make education research something that's fun for the teachers that they learn from is super quick and super convenient because as an academic on Becky's side and I'd also tried to do a PhD and failed terribly because I wasn't a very good academic we'd already been involved in education research and seen how hard it is how hard it is to get into schools how hard it is to get quality data there's data everywhere on loads of stuff but there are some basic questions we couldn't answer. We'd always wanted to know, for example, does having your own classroom make a difference? Both of us at times didn't have our classrooms, thought it made us miserable, had this hunch for years that we talked about that if you didn't have your own classroom, you might leave teaching more quickly. You know, spent 30 billion quid a year on schools, couldn't find the answer to this question. But if you put an app together and you ask people one day and at the end of the school year, you ask if they left, you can find out if it makes an actual difference or not. And the final answer is? We spent two years uh, to find out that it didn't, actually. And the people that we asked over those two years, we couldn't find any connection whatsoever. So our hunch was wrong, but we were right to ask. And for us, the efficiency comes from keeping it short, simple, useful for the teachers, but also finding out those questions. That otherwise, you'd spend three years reading loads of books and still not getting an answer to. As you said, there's researchers, there's businesses, every ed tech business is clamoring for any data they can get their hands on. There's policymakers who let's hope they care about data. Have they all engaged with this? Have they come to you? And have you been surprised by those who haven't engaged? We never really thought about it. So we, we started in 2017, very you know excited about our classroom question. We could finally get the answer and write some better newspaper articles. And very gradually, we had people coming to us, mainly think tanks, who are obviously writing forward-thinking policy, presenting that to people who are making decisions about education. And they're always aware, like we were, that they're asking their friends or a focus group, but that by its nature isn't very helpful because we can reweight the data. So we use the workforce census to make it representative. We're not saying it's absolutely perfect. If you surveyed everybody in the country, you'd get these results, but our margin of errors, we're pretty confident are quite low. It was a good standpoint for them. And then from the think tanks, we then had people, yeah, governments ask us questions. We've been commissioned by people like the Sutton Trust during the pandemic to look at lockdown learning, the Education Endowment Foundation. So lots and lots of different people have engaged with us. But actually, I think most people in government use our weekly blogs. If you're on the app, you get a sort of weekly summary of findings. We link you to a blog, but those blogs are available for everybody. We do a newsletter which goes out once a week. And we know loads of people on that newsletter are people who are involved in the decisions around the future of education. You have a great example of this, right? Gavin Williamson recently said, you know, too many schools are leaving early. And so you surveyed this question. And what did you find out? That's right. So Gavin Williamson said he wanted schools to be longer because loads of schools were finishing at 2.45 p.m. And that sounded a bit wrong to us. We actually already had some data from 2019, but we checked it again. And around 2% of primary schools finished before three o'clock. And we also know about 18%, slightly higher this year, of secondary schools finished before three o'clock. 
But a lot of that is because they start early. So if you ask, there's about 8% of schools that also start before 8.30. Also, an increasing number of schools have cut their lunch hour down because they're trying to do split lunches in the pandemic. So they're trying to make sure there's lots of social distancing. You know, if you start early, take a bit of time off of lunch. Of course, you can shave a bit off at the end of the day and it's not really affecting anyone. So it was lovely to be able to go out within 24 hours and start saying, here's the results. And that doesn't mean, I don't think Williamson was wrong on purpose. I don't think there was anything wrong with what he said. He might have been told by 20, 30, 50 people that their school finished at 2.45. He just didn't have any data to hand. We got it for him. Let's talk a little bit about the sample of those 8,000. How does it look against a sort of nationally representative sample of teachers? So we've always been a little bit more heavy on secondary school, which we rebalance in the analysis for our weekly blogs and for anyone that we're working with on commissioned research. It's kind of good in a way, though, because in secondary school, you do have lots of different subject teachers. So about 5,000 are in that group. You can look at just maths teachers, just English teachers, just science teachers. We've also been slightly male heavy for the proportion that are in the teaching profession. We're not majority male because you'd have to go a really long way in the profession to be majority male, but we're slightly male heavy. Again, that's better. There's so few men in primary that if we had them proportionate, they might be a very, very tiny group. And we tend to be most loved by middle leaders and senior leaders, not heads, but middle leaders in particular. So those who have a responsibility for mentoring, curriculum, CPD, because not only do you get the three questions, those take, as you say, about 58 seconds per day to answer. On the back end, we just recommend one daily read. And that's usually a blog, external content, something we've read that we think is interesting that takes two or three minutes. And a lot of people are on the app to get those. And then they share them as part of their newsletters or they share them at the beginning of a mentoring meeting once per week. So it's a nice way to get your voice heard, but also to get a little bit of professional development in. And will you try to push for more of the classroom teacher level or are you kind of happy with the way the samples skewed it? I mean, you just gave some good reasons for that. I'd love to have more of everybody on there. So I'd love more classroom teachers. I'd love more head teachers on there. In primary, classroom teachers are are much stronger because there's fewer middle leaders. It all comes down to how busy you are at the beginning of the profession. One of the things we know and we can see in the data is how much new teachers struggle with behaviour. And just how tiring it is. You know, I remember from my first few years, you're trying to deal with your lesson planning and everything else. So we do have lots of newly qualified teachers, but I also understand if people feel more able to take part as they go through their profession as well. So let's dig into some of the findings. What are some of your favorite findings, most random, quirky or profound? One of my absolute favorites, because it had an impact on the teachers in a particular school, is about 18 months ago, and we could still do face-to-face conferences. This woman ran up to me and she said, oh, we love Teach Tap. We've changed so much in our school. And I thought it was going to be because it changed the staff room conversation. It's now about research and data. And we do hear that from some people. So I was kind of was ready to receive my praise. <laughs> and actually, it wasn't that at all. We'd asked a question about whether or not you had free tea or coffee in your school. I think a teacher had asked us, they'd sent us on Twitter that question and said, could you find out? We'd put it in, not even really thinking about it that much. And about, if I remember correctly, 55% of schools do completely free tea and coffee. In others, there's kitty systems or the milk might be free or the tea might be free, about 55% completely free. And this, this teacher said, before that question, our head wouldn't give us free tea and coffee. They said that they weren't allowed to use taxpayers' money 
to give us hot drinks. So as soon as we saw what was on Teach Tap, we went into the head teacher's office and we showed them it. And now we all get free tea and coffee. And they were like, we think Teach Tap's brilliant. I felt sorry for the head teacher who'd probably been ambushed by <laughs> by some data in their face. Don't feel too sorry for him. That head teacher should have been offering free tea and coffee, let's be honest. I mean, they could have also pointed out the 45%, I guess, that didn't get it entirely free. But it goes to something actually quite important, which is there are about 24,000 schools across England and Wales, and they operate very, very differently. And the conditions in your school, you can often think that's the only way for a school to be. We often only have friends and colleagues in a handful of other schools. And we don't always know what options are available, what can be different. We don't always know what small things really matter to others. Like it clearly mattered to those teachers that that they felt valued by having the free tea and coffee. And what I've loved about TeachTap is it's given us the insights into lots of different worlds. And also it gives teachers every single day an opportunity to think, could we do this differently? Other schools do this differently. Or if I don't like my school, Is there another school that does things out there that might be more similar to what I would value in my working life? That's a very profound point in terms of the education discussion in general. We don't often know what is happening in other schools or down the street. You know, we know our sort of networks. I'm sort of speaking from a parent perspective, but I do think that that might be part of why we have such a fractured education conversation nationally and internationally because it's just very hard to know what's happening in a classroom, you know, if I'm in West London, in East London, unless I read about it in a newspaper. One of the reasons I saw cited for starting this was you wanted more insight as to why teachers leave. What is the teacher attrition rate and what did you find out about why they do leave? I talk about the UK because that's where we are, particularly England. But this is also the case in Australia. It's also the case in the US. Like we find this all over the world, really. Basically, a lot of teachers leave within the first five years. If you get past the first five years, then you do typically do quite well, depending on when you count from, whether that includes trainee teachers or otherwise. You know, it's, it's around a third are leaving in those first few years, and we lose sort of 50% over a longer period of time. And We just felt that there had to be more insights that could be gleaned about what mattered to teachers. We had this hunch around classrooms. Give them all their own classroom and they'll stay. We were wrong. But we have looked at and are continuing to look at a whole raft of different things. For example, how far people commute to work. This has come up loads in the pandemic about flexible working, about office workers, about how much people really value being able to work from home. That's simply not possible in teaching. So if you're doing a long commute every day, does that have an impact? And from what we can see, there do seem to be associations. The earlier you get to school, the less happy you seem to be with your work-life balance. And that's fascinating because when you talk to teachers about coming in early, they say they love it. Oh, I love being in at 7am, get to have a cup of tea, get to put my feet up. But it seems as if working further away, you know, does affect you. And when you're going for promotion, you might have to go for a job that's further away. And that also impacts on teacher recruitment. We've asked about if you had to move 100 miles for your ideal job, would you do that? And there's really only one group that agree to it, and it's largely young men. Women are much less likely to be able to move. So we have a retention issue and we have a recruitment issue and tiny little things that we can pick up about people's choices will help us with that. So, for instance, if you are looking far away Oh, sorry, if you are in a rural community and you've got to get people to come from further away, you might need to rethink, is it possible to do a job share for your headship so that someone's only traveling three days a week instead of five days a week? Stuff like that will make a big difference. 
There's something so interesting in what you just said, which is that people say, I love getting in early, but in fact, they don't. And there's so much of that that happens in the workplace, that signaling, I am the person who gets here at seven, even though it's making you completely miserable and you'd much rather be at home, you know, having breakfast with your family. I do wonder if that sort of instantaneous quick question helps you be a little bit more honest, right? So you don't overthink it. You're not sort of thinking, what kind of person do I want to be presenting? There's so much written and discussed about marking and accountability. What have you found out on those two topics? We ask this question sometimes, which is if you could only do one bit of your job forever and all the other bits got taken off you, which bit would you keep? And there's planning, delivering lessons, pastoral and marking. And I can tell you that 0% of people have ever picked marking. There's about 8% that love planning. And I think that's really interesting in the context of curriculum planning and how different, again, countries, states, regions do things differently. There are some schools where they'll have central planning and they'll have people who plan centrally for the teachers. There are other schools where it's absolutely the rule that the teacher plans for themselves. But there is this core of people who would like to spend their days doing resources. And if they like it, I often think more power to them. Small percentage that do pastoral and most people love delivering. I think the difference with marking is it can feel incredibly repetitive. And most teachers love novelty. You don't go into the classroom if you want to sit at a desk and do the same thing every day. So that thing of having to sit down and just mark a bunch of stuff, that can feel really, really tedious. And in fact, boredom is something that we've looked at before in teaching. Over time, a slight problem with teaching is it can get boring. It can get very monotonous. If you've taught I don't know, of mice and men 15 times, maybe you're the sort of person who can get the energy up for it again. But when we ask teachers who've been teaching more than 15 years why they would leave, it's largely boredom is the reason why. It's not that behaviour's gone to the wall. It's not that they're suddenly very tired or the government. It's just like, I just like a bit of a change. So I think that's why marking is not liked. And what about accountability? Again, something else we hear quite a bit about. I think the UK system feels with the US high on that level. What have you found about that? I mean, a lot of it is done on exams. And we do see amongst secondary school teachers a feeling that they prefer exams over not having exams. They would like some tweaks, but that they do think they're very high stakes, but they largely want to keep them In, in primary schools. A lot of our accountability rests on these exams that 11 year olds sit sats. And we have found evidence, we think, of quite a lot of cheating, or at least people being put under pressure to cheat. And so the accountability for the primary sector feels a bit of an illusion. And it's as though everybody knows, you know, when we ask the secondary schools how they use the data and how much they trust it, nobody really trusts it. So it's interesting that I think everyone kind of colludes in the accountability bit, but we all kind of know it's not right, especially at the primary level. When you ask teachers about CPD, what is it that they want more of? Typically curriculum. Depends a little about secondary and primary, but even in primary, there is a big focus on curriculum. Teachers are very into the subjects or the topics and the knowledge that they teach, and they want to do that better. Obviously, you've always got on the fringe someone who's very, very interested in pastoral, or they want to understand more about behavior, particularly new teachers. But once you get into it, experienced teachers, classroom teachers love the curriculum. Okay, now we're gonna hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, engagement manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know Smart as the maker of whiteboards, but Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other smart things Smart is doing, including a self-assessment tool. 
Jonathan, tell me what a smart ed tech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their ed tech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? Smart ZTech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why EdTech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. Who takes part in the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And it, essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organisations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and CASEL. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities were 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. I'm sure you had to pivot like everybody else. How did you have to pivot and what did you pivot toward? You know, we were a longitudinal study and we had plans for research projects. For example, we'd been asking about anxiety every Tuesday and we thought we were going to track over a school year, the kind of things that happen in a school year, maybe an inspection, maybe around exams, how anxiety changes. So for a moment, we thought, oh no, that's gone. And then we thought, oh wait, we can check anxiety in a pandemic. What a brilliant opportunity. So we've been looking at that. But the other big pivot, of course, is like many education research projects, we were focused on school outcomes or, or kind of if schools do X, does it affect their GCSE results? And all of that suddenly fell apart because there's no exams anymore. However, we did have teachers that we could still get when they were at home through TeachTap. And we were aware that children were now at home in their home environments with their parents. And big change stepped forward and said, look, we're looking to fund any research that can still be done. What, would, what might be available? And we said, we're thinking about doing something called parent ping, which would be teacher tap, exactly the same, daily questions, take less than a minute, share the results back to the users. And we'd love loads of parents to be on it. And they would then be able to tell us about the experience of homeschooling. And so that's what we did. So parent ping launched about one year ago. We'd love parents to be on it. So if you are a parent, please do download Parent Pings quick to set up. If you hate it after a couple of days, delete it. But if you love answering the questions, stick with it. And we've now got about 1,500 to 2,000 parents on any given day 
answering questions. And that means we're starting to see what parents think as well as what teachers think. That's fascinating. Oh, and then you can put it all together. So what were some of your initial observations or findings? My absolute favorite finding from Parent Ping is around how parents want to be addressed by teachers. They largely want to be called by their name. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Since I arrived in this country seven years ago, I've been saying, why will no one just call me Jenny? Right. And also even worse than that, which is the one that actually lots of teachers do, is they just call you mom. Hi, mom. Mom, would you like to sit here? That happens a lot, a lot. And it drives parents up the wall. Um, We then presented this back to the teaching profession in some of our blogs and in some of our social. And there was a lot of anger, a lot of really upset teachers. They felt this was a really outlandish thing to expect from the head teachers and teachers. They're like, I just don't have the time. I can't possibly know all of your names. And it was just a really interesting example of two sides having different points of view and really conflicting on it. That's a fair point. I mean, they need to know the kids' names, but do they really need to know our names? I mean, it's funny. It's like, we want to be seen and heard too. (laughs) But they could just ask you. You could just say, mom, I'm sorry, what's your name? Jenny, Jenny, would you like a seat? It's, it's, it's five seconds. And when you see the strength of feeling from the parents, I think, I hope it brought home to some people how dehumanizing it can feel to suddenly be just mom or dad. Right. What else? What else did you find? We've been looking at perceptions around vaccinations. That's been really interesting. And the extent to which dads seem much happier for their children to have vaccines from the off. Women were much more concerned. But this also got to really interesting findings around who does what in the home. And like 94% of moms book doctors and dentists appointments. And I think it was less than 20% of dads. And I sort of came to the conclusion that if dads were left to their own devices, children's teeth would be dropping out. I mean, it just, it's bizarre, the difference in the two. And this comes up a lot when I talk to people about parenting, and I hope none of your listeners have just done this. I will say to people, you should download parenting. Do you have children? Yeah, sure. And they'll say, oh yeah, I'll get my wife to download it infuriating and you're just well you know you're a parent as well you could you could both download it because you might both have different opinions and different points of view so the extent to which we found it hard to get dads to engage is a real shame and I don't find that when I talk to to dads that they're any less engaged with their children they're really interested in the data we found that men love teacher tap so it's been a real surprise that that hasn't happened and so yeah we'd love to have particularly more dads but all parents on there Maybe there's a fascinating theory of behavior change by which dads who engage with teacher tap will start booking doctor's appointments. That would be a real victory, I think. Yeah, I definitely (laughs) had someone in the day who said, well, I I take my son to his hair appointments. I said, no, he just goes with you to your hair appointments. Next time, take him to the doctor's. And I hope it has got through. What about remote learning? I mean, did you ask them about remote learning and what were some of your findings there? We did. So we've got the EEF learning lockdown study. Unfortunately, I can't say anything about the findings. They're really exciting, but they're not actually due out for another couple of weeks. So you'll have to take a look at the EEF learning lockdown. What we did, just in case anyone's thinking, why should I go and look at it? What we looked at was parents' perceptions of how successful home learning was and checked to see if it was anything that the school did or if it was to do with the family's lives. Because we often want to say as parents, you know, oh, it's a nightmare. It's something that the school is doing. 
but actually how much is it related to our own experience, our own context, our own children? And that's what we've been able to disaggregate. But you'll have to look it up to find out the results. You were involved in this Nuffield research. I think it was called The Health of Teachers in England over 25 years. Is that right? That's right. Again, it was Becky, my co-founder, Professor Becky Allen, who was leading as the academic on it. But it was we used the TeachTap data and the anxiety data to find out what was going on with well-being. There were some extremely surprising findings in that research. What surprised you? We were in such a fortunate position because we'd been checking anxiety from October 2019, not knowing a pandemic was coming. And we can see that in any given moment, about 14% of head teachers, something like 10, 11% of teachers have very high levels of work-related anxiety. So that's, that's pretty standard. And then we saw that shoot up when schools went into lockdown, actually just before the lockdown, when it got quite difficult in schools. After that point, for the majority of classroom teachers in the state sector, actually their anxiety went very low and it stayed pretty low all the way through to September. So much lower than even in ordinary times. It went up occasionally around the June reopening for primary schools, but otherwise stayed low. And one of the reasons we think that's the case is we know from our previous research, it's so stressful being in school. Behaviour management, classroom management, it's a very hectic day. It starts early, it ends late. You've got bus duties and lunch duties. You're trying to run extracurricular activities. Um, you've got detentions. You might have, I don't know, children kicking a football at your mug and it smashes everywhere. It's quite a stressful day. Whereas actually being at home for teachers, even though they were trying to wrangle with online lessons and live lessons and everything else, just wasn't as anxiety inducing, which was quite different to other professions in that first lockdown in 2020, where people were worried about their jobs. They were worried about whether or not they'd be able to stay open. They were worried about the health of partners and so on and so forth. For teachers, by and large, because they were a bit younger, they're a bit protected, they were low. For heads, however, their anxiety was high. It stayed high and it's never really recovered from the very beginning of last March. And especially from September this year, everybody's anxiety started to go back up again. Classroom teachers went up higher and for heads, it just it just shot up. And by January, we had 54 percent of head teachers reporting high levels of work related anxiety. It's an extraordinary number. Heads are really resilient in our data and they largely love their job. They want to stay in the profession. If you've got to that point, you've usually done 15, 20 years, you're in, you're committed, you're sold. So to have that level of anxiety has really played on them. And we've also seen subsequently to then teachers' anxieties going up. And in England, where they've had the teacher assessed grades, middle leaders have really felt it in the last couple of months as well. Their anxiety has been second only to head teachers. So it's quite an interesting pattern over the year that, there were some protections early on and being at home was or else felt objectively less stressful, but that has then been made up for in the later lockdowns, which have been much more difficult for teachers, I think. What do you do with that to help? I mean, how do you then think about, I've got this data, I'm seeing this problem, what can I do? We put that data everywhere. So we're sharing it on social media. We have it in the blogs. Last week, I was in a cross-government meeting talking about this data. I go out to head teachers. I've spoken to lots of chairs of governors and governors meetings to point out that I don't think any profession can be chronically stressed in the way that teachers have been over the past year and it not eventually catch up with those people. 
unless some effort is taken to give a period of downtime. So that's maybe this summer, really making sure there's three, four weeks where no one is working. That next year, senior leaders who weirdly haven't had anywhere near the same level of stresses, senior leaders have looked more like classroom teachers. Is there next year for one year only? Could they take some extra responsibilities? Could there be a secondment for a term so that a head teacher could have half time working? Something that could be done to alleviate some of these stresses because I don't think heads feel it. They are very robust and very resilient, as I've said. And I think a lot of them would say they, they haven't felt this stress. But we know from TeachTap all the time what people say and what they feel are quite different. And stuff can catch up with you very quickly once the crisis is over. I'd love to dig into a couple other findings on that, because one was, and this is pre-pandemic, so, you know, to be seen what, what happens afterwards. But against this narrative of teachers are miserable, there was some pretty good evidence that teachers... We're no more stressed than other professionals and maybe even a little bit less pre-COVID. And also some of the happiest professionals out there that they did derive meaning from their job and that many other people didn't. Why was there such a disconnect between what was happening and what was being told? Well, because I think one is about your pride and your emotion. And we saw, for example, huge levels of pride whenever we asked school teachers in the pandemic for example, how proud are you of what your school have delivered for your pupils? They're, they're super proud. It's like, oh, you know, the huge scores, right? But there is a price to that. There is an energy price to that. And the energy price is in the workload. It's in how many Sunday nights you're dreading your job. It's in how many times you've cried that week. And we ask about crying. It's a surprisingly high how often people cry in their jobs. And so it's wonderful in teaching. It's a brilliant job. I loved it. I would go back and work in a school, you know, tomorrow if there was the right opportunities in life the narrative and the meaning is there but that narrative and meaning comes at a cost and we can often focus on one or the other to our detriment we can get so bogged down in the day-to-day -day difficulties of our school we don't look at how amazing this job is and the fact that you get to go in every day you change lives you're part of a community that community is there for you like you're there for them you get through stuff together and the reason why heads in particular struggled so much with the school closures is that's the promise you give to your kids right every day doesn't matter what happens in your life at home you come here and at nine o'clock your lessons will start and we will teach you something relevant and we will look after you and we will be here for you and then suddenly they weren't and they couldn't do that anymore. And that's that's unbelievably emotional and difficult on all levels. So I think that's been kind of ripped away, but they've nevertheless found the meaning. They've been there in many different ways for their communities. But the cost is people's sanity in some cases, because it, it's just taken so much uncertainty, so much workload and so much of everything else from them. I'm going to do my fairy godmother bit where you're a columnist, you have opinions, it's formed by data, you've been in the classroom. If you could wave a magic wand and change things for teachers, sort of in tangible ways, what would they be? Okay, this sounds glib, but I've said this now for years and it's true. Over 60% of teachers have an issue where at some point in the day, they can't see the board because of blinds or sunshine comes in or sunshine is in their eyes. Like we just don't have blinds on the windows <laughs> in this country at the right levels. And I think it has a genuine impact on heat and learning. And I would just start the National Windows Fund and any teacher that wanted blinds, I don't know, I would like compel people to put the blinds in for free to them. So that sounds really, really daft, but I think it would honestly 
make a massive difference. The other small one, but I've not got a good enough solution is around emails. We, before the pandemic, started looking at emails quite seriously. It's a huge workload for teachers. And the difficulty is about half of teachers want to be able to answer their emails anytime they want. And about half want there to be really hard boundaries and they don't want anyone emailing them after five o'clock or they don't want to deal with it till 9 a.m. tomorrow. And the problem is those two groups can't nicely coexist. So what I do, I think, is fund every single school to have an email system which enables you to either pause or delivery delay your emails. And it would have to be both because some solutions only work for some people and some only work for the others. And if every teacher could manage their email in those two ways technologically, which is probably be about £10 per person per month, I think it would make a huge difference. So last question, COVID, is it going to accelerate progress or do you think we get kind of stuck where we were before? I think there are certain things like always that get accelerated and there are some things that get left behind. The use of technology has undoubtedly been accelerated and the place I think that will have the biggest impact is in homework. Weirdly, I don't think that much is going to change in the classroom. We're not suddenly going to have loads and loads of one to one devices, certainly not in England anyway, maybe in some other countries that have invested in that. But we see teachers now wanting to use online platforms for uploading homework to mark homework, particularly where there are packages and subscriptions they can apply for, which will do auto marking and save them that hated marking time. We've heard lots of teachers talk about voice notes. So being able to speak your feedback and then send that to young people, particularly if they're very young and so they're not able to follow your handwriting, it saves time. Modern foreign language teachers particularly like that because they can speak in the language or they can model target language. So that helps as well. And I think those small hacks might make the workload of homework better and more interesting and more exciting. And so that's positive. The downside is... When you've had everything turned upside down for two years and you've been planning and working through that, and you also then have to go into a new world now, right, where there's new technology and there's new ways and everybody's back again, you've kind of got to go back and pick up the pieces and it almost takes another two years to rebuild. I think that's very tiring. And in the past, lots of teachers have been tied to location. One of Becky's big research points is around trailing spouses. So how many teachers actually end up in a location because their partner has a job that's location specific and they were the teacher so they could go anywhere. And so they sort of get trapped into teaching. They might like it, but they've always got an eye out for other jobs. However, if you're in a small rural village in North Yorkshire, that might be quite tough to get a job as a marketeer or working in data analyst or whatever. But now those jobs are likely to be more available. It's going to be much more flexible working, much more remote working. So we also have to think about the fact that our teachers, it's going to be more competitive to keep them. Because if I'm a maths teacher or I could work as a data analyst for a bank in my lovely little village, or if I'm an English teacher and I could work as a marketer for some huge advertising company who's normally in London, Will I turn away? Will I actually think, well, it's great. I got you through a pandemic. I've done all my moral lovely bits to do me a lifetime. And now I'm going to go and get some money and work from home instead. We've got to keep a handle on how we manage that. Okay, I'm going to end on three fun questions. What is your favorite book about learning? Anything by Seymour Saracen. He's a US academic, looks at school organization. I was obsessed with him. He's who got me blogging 10 years ago. Perfect. Thank you. What is your favorite book not about learning? The World According to Garp by John Irving. Love that book. Fantastic book. And what are you binge watching? 
Well, I just finished re-watching ER for the third time in my life, which given that it's 16 series is, is quite hard to do. So I'm up for something new. It'll probably be a little bit shorter though. This is the George Clooney ER. It is the war and peace of television. I love it. Everybody's into Grey's Anatomy and you're like, I'm going back. I'm going back even further. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jenny. When I covered markets, which I did for many years, there was a ton of data to work with. There were stock prices, earning reports, indices, averages. There was Bloomberg data and compensation data, analyst report data, not to mention investor letters detailing how much money was lost or gained every quarter. But a big challenge with educational reporting is a lack of real-time data. There's lots of exam data and accountability data, but what of the conditions of teaching, of learning? As author Annie Dillard so beautifully puts it, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. If we wanna know about the lives of students and teachers and parents, we need to know about how they spend their days and watch how that changes over time. What I like about TeacherTap is that it elicits this real-time data from frontline education workers. It does it by asking about issues that matter to them and hence should matter to us. I find it outrageous that some teachers don't get free coffee and yet are expected to blaze through a day of teaching without barely enough time to go to the bathroom. I'm worried that we care so little about the conditions of their work, endlessly moving around the building, poor lighting, long days, and yet endless amounts of ink is spent in the business press wondering whether junior investment bankers are working too hard, they who earn $100,000 and have access to free food, car services, and expense accounts. I love the granularity of Laura's recommendations, better windows, free coffee, improved email systems. A lot of us spend a lot of time at 30,000 feet talking about big changes, but of course, small ones can have tremendous impact and small ones that come from those on the ground and not 10 Downing Street are exactly the ones we should be focused on. A big criticism of EdTech is that too often it isn't solving problems schools or teachers actually have. This one does both. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.